says, Seeking Mercy. And we are in Genesis 43 today. You would turn in your Bibles to Genesis 43. We're going to read the first 14 verses. And please listen carefully as this is the Word of God. Now the famine was severe in the land. When they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why do you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, as always, for giving us your word and making us your people. You have brought us to another difficult passage this morning. I ask that you would touch our hearts with a reminder of the goodness of your providence. We ask that you would use it to warn us, instruct us, judge us, give us wisdom, lead us towards righteousness. Work your word into our lives this day. And by the power of your spirit, bring about increased faith in each one of us this morning. For this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. How many of you have ever heard or watched A Prairie Home Companion by Garrison Keillor? So a number of you familiar with it. That's good. Well, this was a long-running radio program, and they would have the spoof advertisements on it. And one of my favorite fake advertisements was called Worst Case Scenario. It's about a telephone service where you can call this pessimist named Ralph. And he'll tell you the worst thing that could possibly happen to your plans. One segment, a guy calls Ralph to ask, what would be the worst case scenario if he takes his wife to the movies that night? And Ralph replies, you want the worst case scenario? Your wife will ask you to go to the snack bar and get her something to drink. 
And on the way back to your seat, you'll trip over someone's feet and spill your drinks on the people in the row in front of you. And they're going to sue you for all that you're worth. You're going to lose uh, your house and your car and your job. Your wife will leave you and take the kids. You'll start drinking and end up on Skid Row. And the caller says, wow, thanks. I never thought about it that way. I guess we're staying home tonight. Worst case scenario is presented as a practical service designed to help you apply Murphy's Law in all your specific situations. And the general law is if anything can go wrong, it will. And we laugh at Murphy's Law uh, because we've all had times when it seemed like we were living under it, when everything in our lives seemed to be going wrong. Of course, it's never funny at the time that it's happening, especially if the things against us are of a serious nature. However, instead of calling it Murphy's Law, I think it should have been called Jacob's Law. After all, Jacob lived a long time before Murphy did, and he sums up the principle at the end of Genesis 42, when he said to his sons, you have bereaved me of my children, Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. But before we scold Jacob too much, we need to admit that most of us have been right where he's at. Now, to review uh, where we're at in Genesis and what got us to this point, we have to remind ourselves that Joseph, whom Jacob thinks is dead, has actually been promoted to the number two spot in Egypt after years in prison. And he's in charge of the plan to save up grain in the years of plenty and then distribute it during the years of famine. Now, the famine had spread into Canaan, so Jacob said his ten uh, other sons, minus Benjamin, to Egypt to buy grain. And they stood before Joseph, but they didn't recognize him in his Egyptian appearance because it's been now uh, 22 years that he's been gone. Uh, But he recognizes them. And he treats them harshly, he accuses them of being spies, and he puts Simeon in prison until the others can return with their youngest brother, Benjamin to prove their honesty. And all these things, Joseph is testing uh, his brothers to see where their hearts are at and to lead them towards repentance. And on the way home, one of his brothers opens his sack uh, to feed his donkey and discovers that the money he used to pay for the grain had been returned. And so the brothers fear that they're going to be accused of stealing when they go back to get Simeon out of jail and buy more grain. But for the first time, they recognized God's hand in their life and exclaimed, Genesis 42, 28, At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? So they return home, report everything to Jacob, and as they finish their story and empty their sacks, they discover to their horror that not just one, but each man's money has been returned. And at this point, Jacob wails his version of Murphy's Law. All this has come against me. It's as if he had picked up the non-existent Egyptian phone and called worst-case scenario, and Ralph said, Yep, Joseph's dead, Simeon might as well be dead, and Benjamin's going to die too. And Reuben steps in at this point as the oldest brother, and he makes what can only be considered an extreme offer. He'll be responsible for Benjamin. If he doesn't bring him back, Jacob can kill two of his sons. Well, it's just a crazy, absurd deal. 
But Reuben's been on dad's bad side for a while. He's trying to get, uh, trying to change that. And being the oldest, he was responsible for Joseph's safety. He blew that case. And, and now Jacob's not about to give him a chance with Benjamin, clearly his favorite son now. So Jacob digs in his heels and he says, no way, I'll starve first. Which sounds fine in theory, uh, but not so much in reality. See, as we get to Genesis 43, we open up, we discover once again they're facing the problem of famine. Look at the first two verses, the problem of famine. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. Well, first of all, in this passage, we see the pattern of God's providence continuing to bring about his designs in the family of Jacob. God's disciplining providence continues through this famine. Famine doesn't stop. It continues. The opening words are, now the famine was severe in the land. So we have the severity of the famine continuing. It's a threat to the whole family. And its very severity forces Jacob to reconsider his previous position. Reuben had begged him uh, to allow him and his children to stand in the place of Benjamin as protection to go back to Egypt, but Jacob had refused. Secondly, we see the disappointing providence of God continues in the imprisonment of Simeon. We kind of forget about him. We don't know exactly how long they're gone. It appears to have been somewhere around two years, and he remains in an Egyptian prison. And then, of course, we get the very strident words of Jacob at the end of Genesis 42, which show us that there's still a lot of tensions that exist in this family. Gives us something of a taste of what these young men, the brothers, uh, were constantly facing from their father. Now, the brothers appear to be somewhere between uh, early 20s to mid 40s at this point, the 12 brothers in that age range. Um, and uh, they've got a deal with Jacob. And he has a ton of bitterness and a ton of resentment. And he kind of dumps that on his sons. But now, because of the severity of the famine, he reconsiders. And he actually comes to his sons and asks them for help. And with Reuben having been rebuffed by his father. And Simeon in prison. And Levi's kind of on the outs because he killed all those people in that village. Judah steps up. And so the next thing we see is the pledge of Judah. The pledge of Judah, starting at verse 3. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And if you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told them was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. 
from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. First thing you have to realize is Jacob's being called Israel here. You remember his name was changed twice earlier in Genesis, but most of the time he's called Jacob. It's not always clear. Um, it seems that you know, when he's following God, it's Israel. When he's not so much following God, it's Jacob. And most of the time, it's Jacob. Um, and that's not a hard and fast rule. There are some exceptions in there. But here are the brothers, and especially uh, Judah, plead with their father to allow them to take Benjamin down to the land of Egypt. And in this abrupt change, Judah now steps forward as the spokesman. And he reminds his father of the predicament they're in. They can't go back before the ruler of Egypt and get grain because the ruler basically told them, don't show your face here unless you bring your brother. Their integrity had been questioned. It was absolutely impossible for them to do anything else. And verse 6, you see, Israel seems to be all focused on himself. It seems to be overwhelmed with sort of this self-absorption uh, and this self-centeredness. He still isn't willing to make the hard decision to send Benjamin. He's only thinking about himself because he says, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Isn't that true to human nature? You know, when we're boxed in by circumstances, we want to blame others. I'm a victim. Why weren't you omniscient? This wouldn't be happening to me if you knew everything. It's your fault. You're not God. And that sounds dumb, but we do that. And somehow we've got to shift the blame. That's just a common thing. We all fall into it. And in spite of this irrational blame, Judah stays calm. He reasons with his father, and some ways he stands up to his father. And from here on out, we see Judah is the leader of the 12 sons. And that doesn't change. Now, the plural indicates the other brothers have joined the discussion at this point in verse 7, because it says, they replied. Um, and what we told them, could we in any way know what he would say? So the brothers sort of join in and help answer the, the, the questions, explain their actions. And if you really think about it, there's, this report is somewhat touching, has to deal a lot with Joseph. Kind of have to get under the surface. Look at this verse again. It says, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? It's the first time we discovered that this was part of the conversation that Joseph had with them, inquiring about the state of his father. And they didn't know that he's inquiring about his father, but that's what he's doing. And he also asked them, do you have another brother? He's inquiring about his full brother, Benjamin. And we see something of the yearning in Joseph's heart. Moses, who's the author, is doing a lot of things here. He's given us a little bit a uh, picture of the struggle that Joseph is experiencing. Because once Joseph had been exalted to the number two slot, prime minister, grand vizier, viceroy, whatever you want to call him, he, uh, he was given a wife and titles and all that, and he had kids. 
And he thanked God when he named his kids. He thanked God in Genesis 41. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. But now he's encountered his brothers in Genesis 42. He can't forget them anymore. He's been forced to remember his father's house. And it's reopened an old wound. And now that he's thinking about his father and his brother, he's lonely for them. And so you get this sort of quick picture into Joseph's heart. We don't get that very often in uh, Genesis. What we do get is Judah makes a much more rational proposal than Reuben did. Uh, first, he appeals to their uh, situation and how bad it is, verse 8. Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. And then he proposes to become surety, S-U-R-E-T-Y. This is an important word, and it's, it's translated as pledge here in the ESV. It's not a common word anymore in English, but it was once upon a time, and it's actually used uh, quite often in the scriptures. And he says he's going to become surety for Benjamin so that if anything happens to him, Judah will, blame, will bear the blame before his father forever. And at least it, it sort of gives you a description in verse 9 of what a surety is. He says, I will be a pledge of his safety. For my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Unlike Reuben, who said, you can kill my kids. Judah says, it's all on me. My life for his. And he adds one more argument that if Jacob had only let him go when they asked, they could have been there and come back already twice. He sort of points out Jacob's uh, obstinate nature, verse 10. If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. It's a nice way of saying, we wouldn't be in this mess if you weren't so stubborn. So the brothers have explained their actions. Judah steps up, pledges himself as surety for the protection of his brother. Uh, Webster's defined surety as one who has become legally liable for the debt default or failure in the duty of another. So a surety, a pledge, a guarantor, is one who stands in for another and takes the penalty if necessary. Now, there would be another one from the tribe of Judah who would play that role many centuries later. But we see here, at any rate, God's providence conspiring to bring the brothers, all of them, back to Egypt and at the same time to discipline them in grace. And their father's response to them, both on the initial return and then their departure back to Egypt, so far has been all harshness uh, towards them. And surely that had to be somewhat wounding uh, for the brothers to face the accusations and suspicions of their father. And I think it's ironic. You know, I mean, Israel had good reason to be suspicious of his sons because they've just done horrible things uh, in the past. But the irony comes in, he displays this suspicion right when they're acting with the most integrity that they have ever shown. It's like they finally got their act together, they're doing right, they're being honest, and he's still suspicious. They've risked their lives. They told him what happened. He's still suspicious. And it shows us the consequences of sin. 
You know, we're growing up, uh, we all heard the story of uh, Peter and the wolf. And what happens when you cry wolf? Well, apparently that applies not just to crying wolf. It applies to a lot of things when you have established what we nicely would call a character flaw. It's not surprising that someone would judge you according to that old character flaw, that character pattern, even if you've changed. And here the brothers are showing signs of change and growth, but the father is suspicious as ever. We also have to realize he's a man with a broken heart. And the Lord is using all of this to discipline them in grace, to prepare them for a great reconciliation. And reconciliation always begins with faith, by believing that God can change the situation, change the circumstances, change the people involved, change us. And we see that faith emerge in the prayer of Israel. The prayer of Israel, verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. And then verse 14, we have this prayer. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. and May he send back your other brother and Simeon. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So if we look at these verses, you'll see Jacob, or I should say Israel, finally relents from his refusal to send Benjamin. He sets forth a plan for them. He commits them uh, and himself to the sovereignty of God by lifting up this incredible prayer of total trust in God. And the trust of Israel is beautifully displayed in these verses. He places the whole of his hope, the whole of his future in the hands of God Almighty. In fact, in his actions here, in his words here, really faith is defined. You couldn't get a better definition of biblical faith than the action of Israel in this passage. Because he relents, he gives three instructions. He says, first of all, sons, take a present. That would have been just complete protocol in those days. If you went to a high official, you would have been expected to bring some sort of gift. Now, there wouldn't have necessarily been extravagant gifts. Remember, they're in the midst of a famine. But it probably cost them a great deal to give these gifts. We read, take some of the choice fruits, um, you know, honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. You don't give those things away in the midst of a famine. But they did. And it took great faith to give away things they needed themselves. But they did. And they took them away. Second, we see in verse 12, he tells them to take double the money they took last time and take back the money that had been put in their sacks. So as every intention of presenting themselves and giving the money back, um, is Israel suspicious that they had cheated the Egyptians? We don't know. It doesn't say. But he wants that money given back. And then gives them double the money to take this time in case they need extra. I mean, perhaps not having been paid the first time, he's thinking the Egyptians are going to jack up the price. Perhaps the famine's gone on, the supply has dwindled, demand has risen, and now they're charging more. Whatever the case, he gives them the money they got back the first time, plus double 
uh, that they had taken before. And no matter how you count it, it's a lot of money. And the famine's not over. And no one knows how long it will last. And they might need this money uh, to buy food again in the future. So it takes great faith to send the brothers back with so much. And third, verse 13, he says, take Benjamin. And these are his steps of, of his human wisdom. And there's nothing wrong with what he's doing here. Far from it. He's acting prudently. <coughs> Excuse me. But he doesn't stop. He acts wisely. He does what he can, but he doesn't stop. He doesn't trust in these particular strategies, the strategy of the presence, the strategy of returning the money, the strategy of meeting the demands of the Egyptian ruler. Ultimately, his trust is in God. And that's what we see in verse 14. He says, May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Well, we saw three things about the plan, and now there's three things about this prayer. First of all, he uses the name for God, God Almighty. That's the name with which God had revealed himself to his grandfather, Abraham, all the way back in Genesis 17, where it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. This is the God who made the promise to give Abram a seed. Now that's significant when you see what Jacob's about to do. He's about to send all of his sons to Egypt with the possibility that they will never return again. And that the line of the covenant will end. And he's too old to have any more children. He's putting all of his eggs in this one basket, but it's God's basket. So he calls on the name of God Almighty, El Shaddai, God Almighty. It's my only beef with that song. It's a beautiful song. El Shaddai, El Shaddai. That's not El Shaddai. In the Bible, El Shaddai is El Shaddai, and you fall on the ground. That's how it works. He's God Almighty, face plant into the dirt, don't kill me, that's El Shaddai. Don't be singing nice, sweet songs. El Shaddai is the guy who, like, kills the people he doesn't like. That's not what we do. The, uh, so he says, El Shaddai. It's going to take God Almighty here. And he's asking God Almighty to grant them compassion in the sight of this man. This is a testimony to his, obviously, Calvinist theology of providence. He knows that even in the heart, the, the heart of the Egyptians is held in the hand of his God, God Almighty. And God can make those Egyptians be merciful to his sons. And he prays that God would uh, cause them to grant favor and bless them. And then finally, we have these words of resignation at the end. He says, and as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And when I first read that, the first time, you know, not only did it sound pessimistic, it kind of came across as whining. It's almost a contradiction of what's going on. You have this burst of faith and then this pessimistic outlook. But remember what Jacob is risking here. He's risking everything. And once again in the book of Genesis, we see God require a patriarch to risk 
everything in order to gain the promise. The covenant promise of God is at stake. Is there doubt mixed with Israel's faith? I'm sure there was, just like there is with ours. Is there an unbelieving fear mixed with Israel's faith? Again, I'm sure there was, just like there is with ours. But ultimately, this whole section speaks of Israel's absolute trust in God Almighty. He's risking everything. Remember, Abraham took Isaac. We made a big deal about he's going to sacrifice Isaac. He's the son of the covenant, the son of the promise. Well, now Jacob's putting all 12 sons on the line. He doesn't know what's going on, but he risks everything. And we see here the test of the faith of Israel and even a a definition of faith in his actions. He's placing his whole trust in God. Everything's in God's hands, and he's going to have to wait how long? How many months will Israel have to wait before he'd hear whether his hopes are dashed or his dreams are fulfilled? And all the sons would be reunited with him? He has no clue. We are not told it yet at this point in the story. So he has to place his whole trust in God. And we see faith defined by his actions. So there's two really huge things that happen in this passage. Judah steps forward as a surety for his brother, and Israel responds in faith. Judah is a great sinner, but he steps up and takes charge, puts his life on the line for his father, for his brothers, for their children, for their families, and for the whole covenant line promised by God. Israel is also a great sinner, but he prays this great prayer and demonstrates great faith. And both of these things are critical for understanding how God is working at this time in the book of Genesis. Surety and faith. Those are important concepts for us to remember. I was thinking about this, and I asked Jeff, I said, we've got a song that uses the word surety in it. And so he's like, oh, yeah, we're going to sing it. And I said, we've got to do it at the end. So I made him juggle the lineup and all that. It goes back to that whole being mean thing. Um, but I, you know, I started to look up information about that, and I came across this great article. Uh, Matthew Smith is a singer-songwriter from Nashville who takes old hymn lyrics and sets them to new music. He's a founding member of the Indelible Grace uh, community. We sing a number of their songs. Uh, he tours full-time playing concerts and singing hymns in churches. And a few years ago, he wrote about how he came to find joy in old hymns set to new music. I'm going to read this article for you. He writes, When I was in high school, I loved to sing. I sang in the shower. I sang in my room. I sang walking down the hallway at school. I sang until people told me to shut up. They seemed rude at the time, but in retrospect, they had a point. It was pretty annoying. By the time I was 16, I figured out a way to sing in a socially acceptable way. I learned how to play guitar. Like many high school kids before and since who've learned to string together three chords, I was soon recruited to lead the worship singing for my youth group's meetings or force myself upon the position my memory fails me at this point. After leading the music, I would sit down and hear a message whose point was often that I needed to try harder. Try harder to be a good witness at school. Try harder to avoid temptation. Try harder to obey God. Somehow the idea of trying harder carried over to worship. 
My repertoire consisted of praise and worship songs, none of which had an F chord because I didn't know how to play that one. But mainly songs that talked about how much I wanted to worship God. And I thought if I tried harder and was sincere, sincere enough and really meant it enough that I would enter into a state of capital W worship. And the world around me would fade away and I'd lose my inhibitions and would be, uh, achieve this spiritual state of being lost in worship. And that state of spiritual ecstasy never arrived. And in my mind, there was only one person to blame, me. I was a failed worshiper. When I arrived at Belmont University in Nashville, I found myself at a Bible study called RUF, Reform University Fellowship. The guy leading the singing had an acoustic guitar, and I was captivated by the music he was playing and by how unreasonably often he broke a string. I had never heard any of these songs, but I was drawn in by the words. They were beautiful, artful even, and I didn't understand the meaning the first time through, but the songs captivated my imagination. I soon found out these songs were old hymn lyrics set to new music, and that certainly explained the these and thous. Over the following weeks, as I stood and sung these hymns and sat and heard the word preached, I found myself intrigued, fascinated, and offended. For the first time, I heard clearly that life was not about me. Every way that I had tried and failed to please God, Jesus had tried and succeeded. And he didn't do it in order to put me in his debt or be a good example to follow or show me how easy life would be if I had the right strategy. He did it while I was dead in my sins. Everything that needed to be done was already accomplished at the cross, and the empty tomb meant true, lasting freedom for me. The lyrics I was singing were not about my desires and how much I wanted to worship God. They were about Jesus and his desires. And they gave me beautiful reasons why he was worthy of worship. The lyrics to one of these old hymns went like this. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. It continues on and says, these hymns invited me to be honest. Rather than demanding I leave the hardship of life at the door and lose myself in a worship experience, which never panned out anyways, and upon reflection, seem more of a Buddhist ideal than a Christian one, they spoke frankly about how weariness and sorrow and pain are part of the normal Christian life, not personal spiritual failure. He says, for a few minutes every week, my eyes were turned away from measuring my own performance, spiritual otherwise, and I was invited to measure Jesus' performance on my behalf, and he never came up short. A couple of years into college, Kevin Twitt, the RUF minister who led the music and broke all those strings, decided to record a CD of some of the hymns we were singing, primarily to get the music out to other RUF chapters. <coughs> One week, he handed out the lyrics to an old hymn called Come Ye Sinners, told us that someone needed to write music to it. So that night, I sat down with a guitar in my dorm room with these words, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, wick and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. 
All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. He writes, it's hard to imagine words that can more perfectly capture what I was experiencing. My dreams of fitness being good enough for God had been dashed, replaced by a vision of a Savior who is able, full of pity joined with power, <coughs> to stand and save me. And by the end of the evening, I had finished the music and it even had an F chord. The first CD, Indelible Grace, spread by word of mouth. We began receiving orders from all over the country. It became clear that they weren't resonating just with college students. I began to travel and play uh, hymns and was encouraged to see young and old respond to what they were hearing. The first time a lady in her 80s came up to me after a concert and thanked me for singing these hymns, I did some mental math. Pretty sure she didn't listen to U2 or Wilco or the Beatles or any other music I liked, but she got it. In that moment, we connected over the beauty of the gospel, no matter what music it was sung to. And I read that and I thought, that's a great article. And I love the words of that song, Before the Throne, My Surety Stands. Surety, as I said, isn't just another biblical concept. It's hugely important. According to Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary, surety is a pledge made to secure against default one who contracts to assume the debts of another in the event of default. The practice of one man standing as surety for another was prevalent in Old Testament times. But there is a surety more significant than a financial pledge. Judah, for example, pledged to be surety for Benjamin in Genesis 43, taking responsibility for the life of his brother. This is the kind of far-reaching responsibility the psalmist had in mind when he asked God to stand as surety for him in the face of his oppressors in Psalm 119. And it's the kind of responsibility Christ took by dying and becoming, Hebrews 7.22, a surety of a better covenant. In Christ, we have the provision that, uh, the assurance that all the provisions of God's covenant will be fully and faithfully carried out. Matthew Smith finished his article by writing, At every concert, I hope to give others a taste of the freedom I experienced in college. As I grow older, these hymns have woven themselves into the fabric of my life. With every hurt, every failure, these words go deeper and resonate more as they gently but firmly lift my head to my sure hope, the ascended Savior who earned a righteousness for me and whose perfect life of worship makes this failed worshiper forever accepted by God. Perhaps when Matthew Smith comes to Potomac Hills as a guest worship leader on September 2nd, he'll lead us in these words. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Christ is our surety, our guarantee of salvation. And salvation is something that's worth placing your whole trust in God for. Because it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Remember that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close.
Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our Lord, we are so much like Jacob. We can be full of doubt and anger and bitterness and resentment at one moment and then find ourselves praying and believing the next. We can be unstable and unfaithful and unloving, and then we read that Christ is the surety of a better covenant and realize that most of all we're undeserving. So this morning we give you thanks that when we were still far off, you met us in your son and brought us home. Thank you that we're not beyond your grace. Thank you that the blood of Jesus covers our sins. Thank you that Jesus is our surety, our sure hope, our ascended Savior who earned a righteousness for us and whose perfect life of worship makes failed worshipers like us forever accepted by God. For we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever.